BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome to episode number 31 of the Marine Layer podcast with TJ Mathewson and Lyle Goldstein. On today's pod... We're joined by Rob Friedman. You know him as the Pitching Ninja. And if you would guess, we talked about pitchers, Mariners pitchers, pitchers around baseball. Excellent conversation with him that you'll want to stick around for. We have our three Mariners storylines. We're back with some more voicemails. Didn't do it last week, but we've accumulated some over the last couple of weeks. And we'll hear you guys out on the voicemail line. We'll go down on the farm and pick out a standout Mariners minor leaguer, another Russell Wilson umpire of the week, and we close out the show with Speak Your Mind. Just a reminder, we've partnered up with In The Clutch Clothing Company. In The Clutch Clothing is an official partner of the Marine Layer Podcast. In The Clutch is the ultimate fan site for Seattle baseball merchandise, including the Celebration Trident, official MLBPA shirts for J-Rod, Jared Kelnick, Cal Raleigh, and Los Bomberos. TJ and I have talked about it a bunch. We've got our shirts. I've got mine. TJ's got his coming. They're awesome. We love wearing them. You guys are going to love them too. If you want to get some of your own, use the code MarineLayerPod at InTheClutch.com for 10% off. And currently, every shirt on their website ships within the U.S. for free. And a reminder to all of you listening, wherever you might be listening to, if you're listening on Apple, if you're listening on Spotify, if you're one of the few people listening on Google Podcasts or Amazon, go head over to our YouTube, subscribe, leave us a comment, turn on the notification bell. No, you can find all of our content across all of those platforms, YouTube, all the podcast streaming platforms, vice versa. If you're watching on YouTube, go find us on Apple, go find us on Spotify, Click subscribe, click follow, leave us a five-star review. Let us know what you think of the podcast. We can use all of that we can get. We encourage you to go do that. And if you're not already, go find us on social media. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on TikTok at Marine Layer Pod. Let's get it rolling. And we welcome you to this episode of the Marine Layer Podcast here recording on Sunday, May 28th, the day before Memorial Day. So, dog, happy holiday weekend. Hey, you remembered the holiday. I did. I had to ask you right before we recorded it. I was like, well, I know we have Monday off, but is it Labor Day? No Labor Days in, at the end of summer? Memor- yeah, Memorial Day. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Got to Got to remember that. I remember Memorial Day. Okay, the solstice is soon, and also my dad's birthday is right around then too. You know, we got we got to get all of our our beginning summer holidays lined up, so we're not we're not forgetting anything. The only thing I know is that I can sleep in tomorrow instead of go to work. 
Listen, I know technically the calendar has summer starting somewhere between June 21st and June 23rd most years. I think it changes from year to year. And then that's technically the start of summer. I don't care. In my internal calendar, summer starts Memorial Day weekend and it ends the day after Labor Day. That's that's the calendar. And you know when summer also starts, dog? When Julio arrives. I was going to say, maybe this isn't Memorial Day weekend. This is Julio weekend because he's back. He's He is I, back. Do we, do we say fully back? Uh, he's he's pretty close. There are two important backs of the week. Julio is back and Moto Pizza is back. Stay tuned to our social channels. Uh, will we have the review out by the time this drops, do we think? Not by the time this drops, but this week for sure. Okay, so... Stay tuned to our social channels, uh, Moto Pizza. If you don't know, it just arrived at the, the at the ballpark. Lyle was able to go get some this weekend. Uh, it's a little e- shockingly easier to get at the ballpark than it is at their brick and mortar location. Uh, I forget exactly where in the Seattle area where they have a multi month long wait list for pizza, which kind of makes you blow back a little bit and makes me think, well, that's probably where I have to go eat when I come back. Uh, whenever I come back for the summer. So uh, yeah, good job, Doug, to stock it out and and get some pizza. I'm kind of jealous. I'd be curious to see the difference between what the ballpark has to offer and what the brick and mortar has to offer, because usually there's a bit of a difference, but I got to say it looked pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty good. Again, I don't want to give away too much. Stay tuned for the review. I will say this, how much easier it is to get it at the ballpark compared to the actual shop. I don't know. I mean, I got lucky on Sunday when I went to go get it because the line happened to be really short at the time I walked up there. Thank goodness. Because I tried on Saturday and that line was an hour long. I mean, it filed back. You would not believe how long that line stretched back. I basically walked right up, peeked my head kind of to the right to see how long the line went. I was like, nope, I'm good. And I turned right back around. It was like the scene from The Simpsons of... Homer's dad, when he walks right in, he puts his hat on the hat rack and he walks right around. He takes the hat off the hat rack and he walks right out. That was that was me on Saturday. But hey, we got it Sunday. So it's at section 314. How many sections down did the line go? Well, it's at the very end. So sections, I don't know, because I think it's right down by the right field foul pole. I don't know if you can measure it by sections, but I mean, we're talking like yeah, like I wish I could paint a better picture of this, but if I just put it this way, if I had stood in that line, I would have missed the first three innings of the game. And I got up there probably 45 minutes before first pitch. Wow. Wow. That's yeah. incredible. But that's a that's pretty telling. That's pretty telling. Again, because as long as the line is at the ballpark, the line to get it delivered to your home is longer than that by multiply by however many amounts. So um Good. If you want to try that out, go out to the ballpark. Stay tuned to our social channels. We'll have the review. I'm kind of jealous, but again, I'll have to come buy it and eat it when I get back up. I'm I'm a connoisseur of pizza, um, so like I always enjoy my trips to New York because that's where all the real pizza is. But Moto Moto's a nice uh, a nice alternative that we can uh, that we can have here in the Pacific Northwest, which you know might not be known for its pizza 100, percent but I'd say it's a that's a pretty good start. If you like deep dish, it's a good start because, you know, it's not the New York style pizza. It's not. It's not deep dish. What is it? It's Detroit style pizza. Difference. Mm. Okay. There's a difference. Okay. Chicago and Detroit pizza are are different. Okay. So Detroit style pizza. Midwest pizza. I'll put it like that. Right. Maybe the best food to come out of the Midwest. 
I mean, what else are we talking about here? Well, I, I know you like yourself some chili, some Cincinnati Skyline chili, right? Skyline chili is the worst restaurant ever invented. And that probably just ended our chance of ever getting a sponsor from them, which I don't think we're getting a sponsor from them anyway. So I don't have a problem <laughs> saying it. That that place should be condemned. Like, remember, like it's not it's remember not when food. we took a trip there. It, it was such a memorable experience. I mean, I sat there and watched you eat about maybe a third of your meal. And even you went, yeah, this is not good. I think I still finished it because I, so Lyle and I took a little road trip from, from Seattle to during college from Seattle to, uh, to Massachusetts for, to the Cape league. Uh, and we made a, we drove through Ohio, of course, right on the way. And I'm like, well, dog, I don't know when I'm going to be in Ohio next. So we're going to skyline Chile. He's like, oh. Okay, so we went about, yeah, I don't know, it was probably 30 minutes out of the way to, to go to the nearest Skyline Chili. And let's just say, like, probably could use that 30 minutes back because, yeah, I don't know. And that's what the Midwest is known for, uh, man. Yeah. You know, the, the standard's not set too high. But in terms of, I guess, Midwest pizza, you're right. that The, the, the Moto Pizza makes up for, for whatever Skyline Chili is worth. Let me just fill in one quick thing. TJ and I didn't just decide on a whim to take a cross-country drive across legit the entire country. We were broadcast interns for the second summer in a row in the Cape Cod League that year. TJ wanted to get his car out there so we'd have a car to drive that summer. So he decided, okay, I'm going to drive it instead of ship it. So the two of us decided to drive out there over the span of a little less than a week to get out there for the summer, and we made a bunch of stops along the way. That was one of them. And like you said, if I could erase that from my memory, I probably would. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to measure which was more memorable, going to Skyline Chili or Mount Rushmore. I mean, two things that I probably won't ever do again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm right there with you. I mean, when the next time I'm going to be in the middle of South Dakota is, I don't know. But when the next time I'm going to try Skyline Chili is, probably never. <laughs> probably never. That's a that's a good assumption. But anyways, in terms of good mid- Midwest food, uh, Moto Pizza, I'm sure, is one of them. Uh, no Midwest food in our storylines, but we'll get to those anyway. Let's get to our three Mariners storylines. Up first, Lyle, it has been very curious to see how Logan Gilbert this season, it, it's, it's all part of his evolution, but it's been really impressive to watch him especially hone his breaking pitches and sort of toy with his repertoire week to week. And it has brought him to what, I guess, more up to his prospect status as a top 30 prospect coming up in the Mariner system and really and truly honing his repertoire and, you know, making himself a complete pitcher, which I think, especially over the course of this month of May, he has done exactly. There's so many different angles we can touch on right now with Logan Gilbert. Let's start with what you just mentioned, the off speed, the breaking pitches, because his secondary stuff has all of a sudden become lethal. I mean, you want to talk about this splitter? Let's just start there. So Logan Gilbert ditches his changeup, right? For two years, he had the changeup. The Mariners talked about they actually liked it as a pitch. He ultimately decided after a pair of seasons, I'm going to go with something new. So he unveils this splitter this year. And it has been unbelievable, dude. That splitter has been deadly. Hitters are hitting 114 against it. They're slugging one. 36 against it. Nobody's hitting that pitch and it's brand new. I mean, this might all of a sudden be arguably the second best pitch in his arsenal. I believe he's going to start 
between the time we're recording this here on Sunday night and by the time this episode drops on Wednesday. So these numbers might update after his next start. However, right, all these numbers across the board for his splitter show, what we harped on at the beginning of the season is that he needed a true out pitch. The problem with him getting hit hard is because he did not have a true pitch to, to get a swing and miss. The splitter is one of them. The slider, while it doesn't accrue as much swing and miss, has also been very, very impressive this year and actually has a better run value than his um, than his splitter does. And he's comfortable throwing those pitches a lot. We've seen him uh, we, we've seen him throw his slider, you know, over 30% of the time this past month in a start. We've also seen him throw his splitter nearly 30% of the time in a start. And we've all, also seen him just sort of throw that out the window and say, you know, I'm only going to throw my fastball because that's been my, my best pitch these last two years. And it's all worked across the board. We're showing that, you know, a, a revamped slider and a new splitter to go alongside that fastball is Logan's formula for success. Here's how Logan sliders evolved over the years. Uh, in 2021, it had a run value of nine. In other words, it got lit up. 2022, it had a run value of zero. So it was fine. wasn't great. wasn't terrible. 2023, here it sits, negative six run value. I mean, look at the difference in just a couple of seasons, how much that pitch has evolved. Now, like you said, it's one of his best pitches. Again, and he's comfortable throwing it. And the thing I like about that, we're caught up in this sweeper revolution. His slider is not a sweeper. It's it's not a Matt Brash slider. It is a true, uh, I think, what's the, it's a, a gyro, it's a gyro slider. So it, it'll spin like this, like a, like a football, and just go, go straight down when, when it's spinning, which is, it, it's got that short, tight bite on it, and he can throw it harder. Yeah, I think he throws it about 89 miles an hour. And he's, again, the biggest thing, he's comfortable throwing it, which is important because he was not comfortable throwing his changeup, but now he has two secondaries. He's really comfortable throwing. I, I mean, I remember his first season back in 21. He was not comfortable throwing any of his off-speed pitches. I mean, his curveball, which got him through the minors, he was essentially just lobbing in there. It was just hoping to get a swing and a miss or just steal a strike, essentially, and then had to rely on his fastball for all the strikeouts. Now he doesn't have to do that. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? I mean, we can just go through a couple of his numbers here. So he's got a 360 ERA right now. He should be pitching much better than that, according to all of the ERA predictors, because his FIP is 279. His XERA is 289. So those two ERA predictors say he should be even better than he already is. So he's probably going to continue to build and improve on what he's already done so far. I'm going to I'm going to add a couple of, I want to go back to those numbers but let me just uh, I want to talk just a little bit more about how he's mixed things up first and then I'm going to give you some context of how good he has been cuz I I really think he's flying under the radar nationally. He is. So I, I I highlighted all of his starts in May. So May 8th versus Texas, I think most of his starts in May. I did his last four starts as of now recording here on Sunday May 28th. Versus the Rangers, where he had six perfect innings on May 8th. Uh, where he went six and two-thirds, he struck out 10, walked one, two earned runs. He threw his fastball 56% of the time, his slider 24%. Uh, he did throw his curveball about 17% of the time. Uh, his splitter was only 2.2% of the time. But Lyle, 10 strikeouts, and he got most of them on his fastball in that start. Here's a point off of that. 
Logan not only is much more comfortable with his secondary pitches now, like we continue to talk about here, the results back it up. Look at how much people are chasing at his pitches now this year. The thing about Logan is not only did he not seem comfortable throwing a secondary pitch consistently over the first year for sure, maybe a little bit from time to time over the second year, but it's the results he's now getting. It's not just the comfortability. I mean, it's all out on paper. He was in the 12th percentile in chase rate last year. People were not chasing his stuff. Well, fast forward a year later, 92nd percentile. Now everybody chases his stuff. (laughs) That's really good. And you know why that is? Again, because he is able to rely on multiple pitches and guys have to guess a little bit more. He's not, not as predictable. I mean, let's just look at his next start. He drops his fastball from 56% on May 8th to on May 14th against the Tigers, 38% fastball, and he threw a slider 31% of the time. He jumped his slider up to almost as much as his fastball is. He bumped his curveball up 2 percentage points to 19%, and he threw a splitter 10% more at 12% of the time. In that start against the Tigers, he went 5 and 2 thirds, only struck out 4, and walked 1. Now we're going to get into the fun start, the one that was kind of when this happened against the Braves. People were like, whoa. I mean, Logan essentially just turned into a junk baller. He, on May 20th, against the the Braves, six innings, nine strikeouts, one walk, two earned runs. 27.5% fastball percentage in that start. 19.5% slider, uh, 24.1% curveball, 28.7% splitter. He threw his splitter more than any pitch against the Braves. Something he has not done. And all of a sudden, he's he mixes all four of his pitches to about equal. And so you really have no idea what's coming. And then he goes to his uh, next start, the last one we had against the A's before recording this, back up to 46 point, uh, 46% fastball, 22% slider, 22% splitter, and then his curveball down to 9%. He, I mean, he's just... He's mixing things up. He's like a bartender back there, just cooking up drinks, and it's working because guys don't know what to expect. It's so much different. I mean, remember that start he had against the Yankees during his rookie year? It was that day game at home. I think it was the summertime, and he went seven shutout, but he was throwing all fastballs in that start. So to your bartender point, back then he was more like us at Vine on Wednesdays, which is a (laughs) – which is a – uh, well, I know old, we know what we're getting every time. <laughs> exactly. It's like it's a, so it's an old bar in Tempe. They had these dollar drink nights on Wednesdays. Everybody used to go and we would order like 50 Long Islands for the whole table or whatever. That was Logan back then. It was just one drink all the time. Now, all of a sudden, like you said, he's mixing it up on people. Now people don't know what they're going to get from Logan and it's for the better. Yeah. Logan's getting a mango margarita. That's what he's getting. He's yeah. got good taste, too. Yeah. <laughs> So let's get some te- let's get some context now into just what this has allowed him to do and how good he has been. Uh, so he is currently striking out twenty nine point six percent of batters he has faced, and he has walked four point three percent. Lyle Goldstein, how many pitchers in baseball have a higher strikeout percentage than that and a lower walk percentage? Why don't you enlighten me? None, not a single one. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? Let me give you the two guys who are closest uh, in that perspective. Uh, again, so nobody has, nobody has a higher strikeout rate and a lower walk rate. The guy, two guys that are closest that I thought were most similar. 
Uh, Joe Ryan is number one, and Joe Ryan is probably top of the Twins, really revamped his repertoire this offseason, and he's, I think, top five in the Cy Young in the American League this season. I think we could pretty comfortably say he's been really good for Minnesota. He's at 20, uh, 28.9% strikeout rate, 4.1% walk rate. Uh, another guy who's pretty close is Zach Gallen. He leads all pitchers in F war. He's at 28.3% strikeout rate, 5.3% walk rate. Uh, that's pretty good company. <laughs> you know what might be the craziest part about all of this? So we've just laid out all of these things that have made Logan so great this year, and it's all justifiable. But if you rank these Mariners' arms in the rotation, Logan's what? Third? Fourth, do you dare say, if Bryce Miller's ahead of him? Yeah, probably. And then, But I texted you today as I'm doing this research. I'm like, Logan's four starts from being an all-star. Yeah. I mean, he keeps this up for four starts. How do you keep him out of the all-star game? Because his ERA is going to be under three. He's going to have a, probably over a 30% strikeout rate while ranking in the top 10 in walk rate in baseball and all of his predictors across the board are great. And you look at his pitches and it's like, what what isn't an all-star about this? All four of those guys are going to have serious cases if this keeps up. Now, how many of them get in? Maybe it's two. If they're lucky, three of them. All four have serious cases right now. And we haven't even mentioned Logan Gilbert is second in all of baseball and whip. Second. Yeah, yeah second. I, I couldn't believe that. I'm, I'm like, no, oh, he is second. No, he's actually second. You want another? I, I got another nugget here. Uh, strikeout percentage minus walk percentage. It's a combination of how many guys do you strike out versus how many guys do you walk? I mean, the higher, the better. The larger this number is, the better, because if you're not walking guys and striking out a lot of guys, you're going to be pretty successful. So strikeout percentage minus walk percentage. He's at 25.3. He is behind Spencer Strider and Kevin Gosman. Pretty good. If you want this conversation bow tied up is in a nutshell, Logan Gilbert is a totally new pitcher this year. He's been really good and he is still being underrated throughout the game of baseball. But here in Seattle, people are loving it as they should because he has been awesome. Okay, second storyline here. A little bit of an interesting point of timing for this one because we're sitting here recording on Sunday night. Eugenio Suarez just hit a moonshot of a walk-off home run to win it for the Mariners and take the series against the Pirates. On the season as a whole, though, is more what we're bringing up as a talking point here because his power hasn't really been there. Now, is this cause for concern or is there reason to believe this can turn around? Well, to start, I mean, I had my notes that he was not hitting for power against breaking balls. And then he got a cement mixer 85 down the dick today and hit it about a country mile. So, you know, when you make mistakes like that, Lyle, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, he did what he had to with that pitch, right? It hung right over the middle of the plate and he absolutely destroyed it. We know he has power. And you know what? I think based off what we've talked about and what our notes say here in front of us from doing prep for this podcast and also just watching games throughout the year, I think he is bound for a much better second half. I don't think he's going to quite match his power production from last year, barring a big jump in barrel rate. I think that's the biggest difference here between this year and last year. Barrels are really the op the ideal batted ball profile. It's a combination of not only hitting the ball hard, but hitting it at the right launch angle as well. 
to clarify what exactly a barrel is. And his barrel percentage is about 4% lower, which is a pretty significant difference. He was pretty elite in 2022 in, in barrel rate. He was 94th percentile opposed to this year. He's down to the uh, 71st percentile. But otherwise, across the board, I mean, his batted ball profile is largely the same, right? So you would expect it's going gonna, it's gonna to turn around. Here's a number to throw it at you. Let's just focus on fastballs. I mentioned, like, if you go look at a Savant page, he's not hit breaking stuff well this year. He's not slugged against breaking stuff well this year. And he's not expected based on what he's produced and the kind of batted balls he's produced against breaking balls that he's miss, really missing out on some power there. He's not. But one thing that did stand out to me was his performance against fastballs. Uh, against four seamers this season, he's hitting 209 and thrug, uh, thrugging, slugging 362. His expected stats against four seamers this year, he's supposed to be hitting 292 based on his batted ball data. Uh, that's his expected batting average. And his expected slugging percentage uh, is 720, which would be um, I, it is it would be the highest number, highest expected slugging he's had on any pitch in his career that he's seen this many times so far. That is an insane difference. We're talking nearly 400 points between his actual slugging percentage and his expected slugging. So that's what I'm talking about when we're sitting here and saying, I think he is bound for a much better second half. Okay. Is he not going to hit 31 home runs again? Will his WRC plus end the year a little bit lower than it did last year? It might. There's no reason Eugenio Suarez can't be a really productive bat again down the stretch and still finish the year with a WRC plus. Let's call it in the 118 range, even if it's not up close to 130 the way it was last year. If he starts to kind of get back to the expected line of where he should be in the second half of the season because all of his expected stats outside of the swing and miss which we know is just a part of his game say that that is supposed to happen I mean he's in the 68th percentile in x slug which again last year he slugged a little bit better than that he's still in the 71st percentile in barrel rate like he's not he's expected to be hitting much better even if he's not going to hit as well as last year these numbers still say he should progress in the second half. Progress. That's pretty much the difference between 2003 Barry Bonds and Adam Frazier. Like that, <laughs> put for some reference. Oh, the expected slug and the actual yeah, slug? Yeah, as you notice, I was typing away there. I was actually, that like kind of popped into my head. I was like, oh, I wonder how close that is. No, it's pretty close. <laughs> it's essentially, he's expected to be slugging like 2003 Barry Bonds, but he's actually slugging like Adam Frazier. So... Yeah, there's, that's a pretty big gap. So maybe he can find some medium. Again, he can still be a really productive bat. We know he has power. He actually does draw walks. His whole thing with his strikeouts is not chasing bad pitches. It's just when he swings, he whiffs a lot. That's what it more is with Gino, and he's going to strike out. But there's no reason that power can't come back. And everything the numbers are telling us and his profile is telling us is that it will here in the coming weeks. Let's give some context on his performance on fly balls this year. Fly balls, your your performance on fly balls is pretty indicative of your power, especially home run power. And it was pretty apparent last year. On fly balls last year, he hit 287. He slugged 943 with a 240 WRC plus. All these numbers come in 2022 with a hard hit rate of 42% and an 18.6% uh, home run to fly ball ratio. 
this season, he is hitting 170 on fly balls with only a 532 slugging percentage, a 74 WRC plus with a 44% hard hit rate and a 10% home run to fly ball rate. Again, home run to fly ball rate, I believe the league average is around what Gino did last year. I think it's around 18-ish percent. So I think one out of every five fly balls you hit uh, goes out of the park. And he's well below that number this year while still on fly balls, hitting them hard about 44% of the time. So you'd imagine some of those are going to start going over the fence or banging off the wall. The key for Gino in the second half here is improve against breaking balls, and then just simply continue what he's done against fastballs and the numbers should start to improve again. Cause he's, I mean, he's clearly not being challenged. Maybe challenge isn't the right word against fastballs. He's not being overmatched against fastballs. It's just the luck hasn't swung his way yet. And and we think it should. Yeah. And that'll, it'll be something to keep track of, but at very least for Gino, he has turned from an average defender to the quite literally the best defensive third baseman in baseball. He is 100th percentile on outs above average. That's really good. Maybe we have to talk about that here for just 30 seconds. I know this was supposed to be about his offense. This is ridiculous what, what's happened to his defense. I mean, last year he was a league average defender, which everybody was thrilled about. They're, they're like, great. For how tough his defense was in Cincinnati, this is all we could ask for. He is the best Defensive third baseman in baseball, not Matt Chapman, not Nolan Arenado, two guys who are known to be defensive savants. No, it's Eugenio Suarez, a guy who Cincinnati tried to put at shortstop in his last year, which was just an absolute project of a disaster in itself. And now here we are just about a couple of handfuls of months late, months later, and he's the best defensive third baseman in baseball. That's a fact. We're feeling pretty confident now whenever the ball goes to that left side of the infield. With, with JP's defensive resurgence paired with Eugenio being the best defensive third baseman in baseball so far, yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll take that. So, Perry Hill, buy you a drink. Do it, you did it again. Hat tip All to right. him. Let's get to our final storyline uh, of this week, Lyle. Uh, kind of generally headlining it. Let's predict some roster churn. We kind of talked about it generally last week, but there are a couple impending guys who are going to come back. Dylan Moore is expected back. He might be back by the time this episode drops. I think actually it's more likely than not by the time this episode comes out on Wednesday, he will be back on the active roster. He's currently in Tacoma rehabbing right now. So let's do some predictions. We'll be able to actually... Once we listen to this, figure out if we we're right or not of what's actually going to happen with this roster. When two guys come back, Dylan Moore is one. Andres Munoz is the other. Munoz expected to return sometime uh, sometime on the next road trip uh, from June 1st to June 11th. First up, Lyle, uh, what do we think is going to happen when Dylan Moore eventually returns to the Mariners roster? I feel like this segment has a chance to be short because I feel like we may just be in full agreement on both of these moves. I feel like the move has to be Sam Haggerty, who's out of options and just as a guy who's been a fan favorite, it might be tough for some fans to see because he played such a vital role last year between his ability to steal bases, how well he hit from the right side, he could move around a lot. But for somebody who's only put up a WRC plus of 44, he's barely playing these days, and he's a utility man, which is what Dylan Moore's role is, it feels like he's the odd man out here. I think he has two options left. Does he really? I'm going to look. 
I'm I'm almost certain he has options. I thought he didn't. So okay, I mean, and in that case, he'd just go down to Tacoma, which makes it an easier decision. Correct. I could have sworn he was so. So that's what I put too. Hold on, let me. I'm going to double check here for a second because they have this on fan graphs of how many options he has. But I'm pretty sure he has two. Yeah, he has two options left. Oh, okay. So I think so. My prediction, alongside yours, I think he's going to be the one that ends up to get option because everything that Jerry said. I know they put out everything, you know, PR-ish and not going to demean anyone. I don't think they're quite going to cut ties with Colton Wong yet, unfortunately. Even though you know we're past the 50 game mark, and usually you know you you have what you have at this point. You pretty much know what you have, and. Colton Wong has not worked out, but with options available on Sam Haggerty, uh, I think that's going to be the option. I think it's going to be Demo, Caballero, and Wong, you know, split amongst the infield. You know, Caballero uh, and Dylan Moore can fill in on other spots in the infield, and Colton Wong can spend some more time uh, at second base as well. And again, like you said, Sam just hasn't really played that much. The problem is, I put another tab here, what I think should happen is, you know, you probably cut ties with Colton Wong at this point. I'm not a GM, but I don't see how keeping Wong, uh, keeping Wong over Haggerty does much, even if Sam's not really hitting at the plate. He's your best base runner late in games, probably besides Jose Caballero, but Cobby's starting. So if you have a guy off the bench, Sam, Sam's like your guy on the base paths to, to go out there and run, so, which I think is pretty important, especially as it gets later later in the season. You don't exactly have a, a ton of speed on your roster outside of, you know, Julio, Jared, and Caballero. So having a guy like Sam Haggerty makes it a, makes it pretty good. And, you know, Colton Wong, he's just he's been just fucking awful. Like it it is past fifty games, right? We it, we keep hearing that fifty games is is the point where you're like, okay, we'll give these guys the first fifty games and decide what to do after that. So you have the first 50 games to evaluate, and the next 50 after that to reshape your roster into what you think, to, to fix those problems or to make the roster better. Well, there's not much about Colt Wong's game right now that looks like it's turning around. He's not, his at-bats aren't great. He's not hitting pitches in the zone. Again, he's been, we highlighted last week, he's been awful on defense. His base running is stunk. His arm is among the worst in the league, right? right? And he's he's probably not a guy that would like to sit on the bench, which he's been doing more because he's just stunk. So I don't know. Yeah, it's how you, however, you balance those two things. Haggerty can play the outfield too. So again, he's obviously much more versatile than Wong, where Wong can only play one position. But I think for the most part of this segment, we're talking our predictions based off what we think will actually happen. And it feels unlikely they cut ties with Wong, like you said. So it'll probably be Haggerty, especially that he has options. He'll go down to Tacoma. Dylan Moore will come back. And I'm sure if there's a guy needed from Tacoma to get up to the big leagues, Haggerty will be just about the first call. Now, on the other side of things here, when Andres Munoz gets back, which should happen a little bit after Dylan Moore, but like you said a couple minutes ago, it's probably not too far away. Somebody's got to get out of that bullpen. Now, who do we think that's going to be? Wanton. Uh, okay, so unanimous it's decision. Pretty quick decision here. Yeah, that's that's so, not a very difficult one. Look, he's looked good in a lot of his outings. the The thing with ten here is obviously he has options. He's incredibly young, and there's just not much room in this bullpen. I mean, if if the Mariners had even a league average bullpen. 110 would probably stay because, again, he's actually flashed some good stuff so far 
And more of his outings than not have been good. But it's just more of there is not a lot of room. And obviously Munoz, who is the best reliever of the group and one of the best in baseball, is getting a spot back on the roster. They don't seem to want to let Flexen go because I think they're worried about another injury and just having that security net if somebody were to go down. So that kind of leaves 10. My thought process about so yeah, I thought 10's the easiest. First of all, like you, you just watch him like sorry, like he is like the least impressive of that group. That's nothing against him, but the rest of the group is is pretty fucking good. So it, that makes it a little bit easier of a decision to send him down. He's got all the options anyways. The way I think about it with Chris Flexen, where they're eventually going to have to come to this decision. Chris Flexen, when he started this year, has not looked good in any sense. It is It, it has not even really been all, all that competitive when he started, outside of a, a start at the beginning of the year, I think. Otherwise, it's been pretty shitty for, for Chris Flexen. So it has to come to a point, like when Penn Murphy gets healthy, or Matt Festa shows that he's ready to come up, or you're finally ready to pull the trigger and bring up Perlander Baroa. you got to think about it with Chris Flexen. Is it worth keeping a guy who I guess he theoretically could slide into a bullpen spot uh, or uh, a rotation spot if you need to and start games? Here's the questions you ask. Are you giving yourself a chance to win those games with him pitching? You know, he pitches now three innings a week, maybe. So he's not stretched out. When he has started this season, he hasn't necessarily given you great opportunities to win. His stuff hasn't really flashed. um, And, also, other teams around baseball could use starting pitching. I'm sure they're calling around and asking because it would make their issue a lot, uh, make their situation a lot easier if someone wants to trade for Chris Flexen. But that's not the case right now, not that we know of. So where where do we cross that line? The more I've thought about this, the more I think they want to keep him around until they are at the point where they where they feel comfortable that they could bring up either Emerson Hancock or Brian Wu if there was going to be another injury. Right now, here in late May, if somebody were to go down, heaven forbid, I don't think that they're ready to bring up Hancock or Wu yet. Brian Wu, by the way, as good as he's been, does not have a lot of minor league innings under his belt, and he's still got some secondary stuff to work on. And Emerson Hancock has been really good outside of a couple starts, but again, I think they want to build him up a little bit more. Now, if this is in mid-July... In August, if they decided to cut ties with Flexen, maybe at that point they decide, okay, if somebody were to heaven forbid get injured, we would feel more comfortable bringing somebody like Hancock up. That would be my guess. I think Dollard's a piece of that too, and I mm-hmm. believe Dollard is still out. He is, but yeah. when and he's healthy, if, you're right. If this, if I think if Taylor Dollard was healthy, uh, I don't know if Chris Flexen would be on the roster right now. I don't think so because you because they would they would think that Taylor Dollard could come in and do what Chris Flexen does out of AAA instead of just hanging out and, and taking a spot in your bullpen. That's that's not the craziest take. I could I mean I think that's fair. I think if Dollard was healthy, I mean he had such a good year last year that he could just be the long reliever and just your safety net guy if you were to need a starter at some point. So. Yeah, I could see right. that. We'll see when Dollar gets back too. Mm-hmm. We've we've just said like, especially if they're if the Mariners are going to go all out to try and win games this year, they just can't keep Chris Flexen in the bullpen. They can't do it. I mean, they're they are they are a man short in that bullpen. And eventually, it's going to get to the point where look, Penn Murphy's going to get a spot back on the roster. Matt Festa, like you said, his ERA in Tacoma. Oh my God, it's oh forty seven. And I know we're talking about AAA stats. 
but he's looked unbelievable since going down there. And then again, we know Prelander Barrow is coming. We don't know the day, but we know it's not that far out. So they're going to have some decisions to make. And that is something we're going to want to watch as the weeks go on. But you know what? It's a good problem to have for a team that's had a bullpen this good for the third consecutive year. I agree. We ready to get to some voicemails here? Let's do it. I, I missed our voicemails last week. You know, our hope is that eventually we could do these, you know, every week. I know you said last week, every uh, like every other week. But if we get enough people calling us and giving us some interesting content, I mean, we love to get to highlight some some good voicemails every week. But uh, it's been two weeks now since we've done voicemails. A reminder for this voicemail segment, if you would like to contribute and potentially have your name and your voice featured on this podcast, give us a call. Leave us a voicemail, 206-880-0907. Again, it's 206-880-0907. Give the layer line a call. Leave us a voicemail. And hey, Bring the heat. Bring the heat. Like, throw it at us. We, we want the good content. So Yeah, let's say that. If you're going to get fired up in, an, in a voicemail, we'll probably play it. Let's put it like that. Yeah. Uh, I think we, ha- we do have one that's pretty fiery, but we'll, we'll, okay. we'll, we'll say that one's going to be the last one. So we'll, 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 uh, we'll end off with, uh, with a bang. So let's get, to, uh, let's get to our first one. Yeah, how's it going? This is Blake, and I'm calling from beautiful. Los Angeles, California. I have two questions for the great host of the Marine Lair podcast. My first question is, you're the general manager of the Seattle Mariners. What is your pitch to Shohei Otani this offseason, and how much are you willing to give him via the contract, and how many years do you want to give him? And my second question is, would you rather have the Mariners win a World Series and not reach a World Series the rest of your life? or over the next 25 years, reach the World Series 10 times, but never win it. Thanks, guys. Okay, my pitch starts with a house next to Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos. Uh, $600 million, and hey, look how good our roster is. Boom. Okay, yours was a little quicker than mine, and I'm glad you went first on this, because as you know, this is a topic I like to dive in on, and I thought this out. So first off, On the money factor, you know I've sat up here on this podcast and we've differed on this opinion before where you're all about spending money on any of the marquee free agents that that are out there. I'm a little more careful about it. I don't love the idea of long-term contracts. Shohei Otani, I do not care. If the Mariners offer that guy a billion dollars, I'd say it's market value and worth it because not only is he the best player in the game, he may go down if this keeps up as the best player of all time. And he's probably trending that way. Here's my pitch if I'm the Mariners to Shohei Otani. I've got three points on here because I'm not even going to talk about the money, the toned down pressure of playing in a non-major market, or the history of Japanese players because Shohei knows all that. And obviously he's thinking about places like the Dodgers right now. They're probably at this very moment the front runner. If it's going to be the Mariners though, here's my three pitches. Number one, the team, its core, and its outlook is a whole lot different than when he nearly signed here in 2018. It's way better now, and they're going to be good for a long time. Number two, it kind of ties into that. That dude that wears number 44 and plays center field, well, he's going to be here for the next 16 to 17 years, and Otani does not have to carry a team. He's got a superstar next to him, hitting next to him in the lineup, playing elite defense behind him in center field. 
for the entirety of whatever his contract will be. And third, here's maybe the thing I'm harping on him most about and and, and really pitching to him. I'd say, listen, Shohei, you want to go to an already historic franchise like the Dodgers, the Yankees, win a couple titles, get your money. Good for you. Those those franchises already have a history of great players. You'll be another, but you're just going to be another great player in the organization. If you want, but if you come to Seattle and you win here with this team in front of this fan base, you will be a legend in this city for the rest of eternity. Your number's getting retired. You're probably getting a statue outside the ballpark. You might get a key to the damn city. It would mean that much to this city if you came here and anchored this team to a title. I genuinely believe that. He will be great with the Dodgers and long appreciated. It will not be the same if he's in Seattle. What a pitch, Mr. Goldstein. Woo! Come on, I thought I, I wanted to think that one out, and I thought that was good. That was great. Yeah, that was good. Maybe he'll have the ballpark named after him. I think that would be nice. Otani Park? Uh, sure. Yeah, I like that. It has a nice ring to it. That has a, they'll throw that in as part of it, naming rights to the stadium. Okay, let's get to our second uh, voicemail. Oh, but wait, wait, wait. before hey, you yeah. play that. Oh, 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 oh. Okay, go ahead. Before you play that, because he had a second question in there. This should take 10 seconds. If the Mariners win a World Series and never get there again, that's what I'm taking. Because they actually win it. Yeah, not even close. Right. Not even close. That, yeah. That's the easiest decision of all time. Like, Blake, could you imagine the anguish of losing 10 World Series? Sounds pretty bad. Yeah, it doesn't sound fun. No, it doesn't. All right. Now let's get to our... Uh, I jumped the gun a little bit, but let's get to our uh, next voicemail. Hey, guys. It's your uh, local neighborhood uh, construction worker out here currently sitting right in the middle of 405 at exactly 308 a.m. If you want to call in, say hi, long-time listener, short-term idiot, you know how it is. So I just want to talk about the Ford twins, Harry and Mike, looking pretty solid. How long do you think Harry will be in single A up there in Everett? And do you think Mike has a future coming up into the the Mariners organization as a DH hitter? really seems like they could be using one right now. Thanks for being awesome. Talk to you guys later. To call at 3.08 a.m. I mean, I respect it. I respect it because I I don't think I would think to call a a voicemail inbox at 3.08 in the morning. But you can call whenever you want. The voicemail inbox is always open. Harry Ford is going to be in single A until – or sorry, high A – uh, until the all-star break where he's going to go up to double way. Uh, he hit another home run today. So he's going to, you know, he's, you know, he's really fucking good. Mike Ford. I'd love to see him up at the big league level. We kind of know what he is as a big league hitter at this point. Would he be, would he improve the Mariners current DH role? Perhaps because Mariners DHs have still been pretty crummy this year, but I don't see him on this roster. He, I know he has an opt out in his contract that he, uh, that he might exercise. So I've, I've heard down the grapevine. I think you summarized that pretty well. So obviously he's kidding in this email. Obviously Harry Ford and Mike Ford are not twins or not brothers. But yeah, I kind of thought the same thing about Harry is whether it's two weeks or two months in double A, he will be in Arkansas at some point this year. At some point he's going to be there. Mike Ford, look, he's been great in triple A, but like you said, he's got an opt out in his contract coming. He may look for a place that gives him a better shot to the majors. Also, like we talked about on one of our recent shows, they might look to Jake Shiner before him. So yeah, I'm not sure what his path to the Mariners is. It, it would take like a catastrophic tie for Ant's injury, you would think. 
mm-hmm. to get his to get his uh, to get his bat on the roster. But you know, if he finds a major league opportunity elsewhere, like go Mike Ford, go go get that paycheck. All right, let's get to our next voicemail. Hey, this is uh, Max. I'm calling in from uh, Kelowna, British Columbia, about six hours northeast of Seattle, and I just want to take the opportunity to complain about how the Blue Jays have monopolized the Canadian baseball television market. Um, You can't watch Mariners games um, from anywhere in Canada on TV, even Vancouver, which is, what, like three hours from, from, from Seattle. And it drives me absolutely insane. The other thing, too, is even when I try to watch the Mariners on MLB TV, I get Blue Jays ads. They are co- constantly shoving it down my throat, constantly trying to appeal to, like, the sort of, oh, we're the only Canadian team nationalism, even though their owners, Rogers, charge the highest rates in the world for uh, telecommunications. So, uh, yeah, I'm very angry. So I see that not like not only are the Blue Jays annoying when they play in Seattle once a year, they're also annoying for people who are not fans of the Blue Jays in Canada. That was going to be my first talking point here is you want to fight the system? Do everybody in Seattle a favor. Stop letting all those Blue Jays fans into T-Mobile Park. It drives people nuts every year that they just flock into that stadium and honestly make it feel like a home game. Yeah, to his point, Vancouver should be a Seattle-based market because it's way closer to Seattle than it is to Toronto. I get the whole Canada thing. I wish I could provide some help on this subject, like in the sense of being able to do something about it. But all I can really do is sympathize with you because, yeah, Vancouver should be a Mariners market. It's it's like the city of Seattle forced to be a Detroit Tigers fan. Like, that's the equivalent Mm -hmm. in terms of where the cities are. That's pretty much what it is. So... (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy, but it, you know, that's what happens internationally. But hey, our first international caller, hopefully we don't get charged international rates on that. So uh, I guess we'll find out. Otherwise, uh, Max will send you the bill. No, I'm kidding. Kidding. Okay. Uh, thanks for the call, Max. Let's get to our final voicemail. It's a little long. Lyle, PJ, just a little bit. Uh, this is the uh, humble younger Goldstein calling in just uh, <laughs> after listening to the last episode, wanted to provide some thoughts on the uh Requirement for stadium roofs at all MLB stadiums. And Lyle so uh, emphatically not put it that all stadiums should have roofs. And TJ, you seem to be in support of that. The owners should just pay for it. And, uh, you know, where's the money coming from? But I have to ask you guys this. If the owners should just pay for it, why don't they already pay for the stadium now? They they don't. They don't pay for stadiums now. And that's not just going to all of a sudden change. And if you wanted that to change, I think that would have to come in a CBA. And, you know, the last thing we want is, like, when the CBA expires is another long strike because people are so hung up about who's paying for the stadium. The precedent is set that taxpayers almost always have to pay for a pretty decent-sized chunk of the stadium. And adding a retractable roof requirement uh, – would add like $100 million plus on top of whatever proposal they're adding. Another point that Lyle, I think, has heard, every the only stadium, I think, or there's two stadiums, I think, that have roofs specifically for rainouts, and it's Seattle and Toronto. I think all the other roofs are because of the heat. Texas, uh, Chase Field for the Diamondbacks. Uh, in Miami, they have a roof. It's And... Uh, Vegas is going to have a roof, uh, at least partially, I think. 
And that's all because of the heat. There's only two stadiums that have it for rain. Because there's only five rainouts a year. It doesn't make any fiscal sense. You can just reschedule the games. Yeah, it's annoying for fans. But it's it's like five games a year that get rained out, if that. So I don't think that's worth maybe the $100 million additional taxpayer investment that maybe could be going to uh, uh, more meaningful purposes. So that's the the two cents. And just wanted to make my and uh, John's argument heard. La, would you like to respond to that? I believe that was from uh, from Brother Goldstein, brother I've brother never, Spencer Goldstein. I've never heard that person's voice in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm I'm sitting here laughing because I I have this argument multiple times a year with them. Every time there's a rain out, and it's basically like a line drawn in the sand. There's no in between. It's the line that you and I are on about. I'm so tired of stadiums not having roofs. And then where Spencer is and my one other friend that say, why do you care so much? Why do you make such a big deal out about about it? By the way, it's never logically going to happen. I don't care if it's never logically going to happen. Like, sure, whoever that random caller was that I totally don't know was uh, standing there and making a lot of valid points. Well, I'm not here to talk about valid points. I'm here to talk about being frustrated that games are getting canceled in the only sport that gets canceled for rain, for weather. Here's a question, Lyle. If they had played basketball games on outdoor basketball courts, it rained, they would cancel the game, right? That's what I'm saying. So, 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 okay, then, <laughs> then figure me this. So the NBA decided then to, to play every game on time all, all, the whole season. What, what did they do to make sure that happened? They, Built a what roof? Oh. What? <laughs> no way. Uh, oh, he, Spencer's probably going to send another voicemail next week. Now good. responding to this. Good, good, good. I hope he does. Um, some good points made there. Again, and also, states don't have to pay for stadiums. There are some privately financed stadiums out there. Climate, pre- uh, Climate <clears throat> Pledge Arena, I believe, is uh, privately funded in Seattle, right? So that was privately funded. I think so. Yeah, I think that was privately funded. So, yeah. like, it's not. It's not like it doesn't have to be that way. If someone really wants it, they can absolutely pay for it. It's not 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 a hundred percent. And I don't think that's something that is in the CBA. That's something that's between the states and the teams. Here's the other thing about this. I understand that the historic ballparks are probably not going to have roofs. What would it look like with a roof on rig on Wrigley Field? Yeah, maybe wouldn't make sense on Fenway Park. Maybe wouldn't make sense. The fact that parks like Coors Field are being built in the new age in a state that snows in April and is not being required to put a roof on it, that's crazy. I don't know how they got away with that. Target Field. Target Field is another. When it's just like 20 degrees and windy and snowing in April and there's no roof. Wow, why did they build the Metrodome? Why did they why did they build it inside? Can you tell me why did they why did they build that inside? Why is it in Minnesota they had to do that? Because because, oh yeah, because it's really fucking cold and it's, like you said, it snows. You're, you're telling me that that Seahawks-Vikings playoff game from 2016 isn't what all sports should be like when it was negative four degrees and they had to heat the field from underneath the turf because it was freezing? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But hey, the Packers play outside. Yes, they do. Yeah, if you guys want TJ and I to respond to voicemails, you could probably send something about building roofs on stadiums because... Oh, we could make a whole different podcast about that. Well, I mean, if you get us triggered about that, 
we'll probably get going about it. So like we've done here the last few minutes. I have two requests when teams build stadiums from now on. Number one, do not put it in the middle of nowhere in the middle of a parking lot. Boring, unimaginative, lame game day environment. Two, at least Milwaukee qualifies for the second thing where they put a fucking roof on their stadium. Like at least that, at least they, they, they did one thing right with that stadium, which by the way is now being held hostage for, for more public money to, to, to renovate until they, they yank a team and put it somewhere else. But that's a, that's a different topic for a different day. So those two requirements, please. I'm all for it. Listen, just build roofs on the new stadiums. That's all we ask. I can let the Wrigley Fenway stuff go, but build roofs on new stadiums. And that is my closing point. Well, what a, what a beautiful closing point it was. We ready to get to Pitching Ninja here? I feel like people are probably ready to hear him. Yeah, I, I'm i very happy you were able to get this interview. He was, Rob knows so much. I mean, he he spends all day looking at pitchers, watching pitchers, and he's pretty good at what he does. Like, you know, he's... He creates content around pitching, and it's fantastic. So we're really happy to get the opportunity to uh, to have him on. He was so cool. I mean, when we saw that he was available for this interview, we were so excited. I mean, it's like we tweeted out this week. Look, all of our guests, we talk about it every week. All of our guests have genuinely been awesome. We have enjoyed every single person that we've had on. But truthfully, yes, we are a little bit extra juiced to have Rob on the show because he is awesome at what he does. He's entertaining. The conversation we had, which is very Mariners based, by the way, is really cool because he breaks down what makes so many of these pitchers so lethal and so fun to watch. So he gives a pretty cool perspective on it. Yeah. And, you know, he's pretty popular. So to to carve out some time for us, you know, it meant a lot. And we got I thought we got some some really fantastic content uh, out of the interview, which which was awesome. We got a little bit into his background, too. And I hey, I think we might be able to get to catch up to him at uh, at All Star Weekend. So I guess we'll uh, we'll have to find out there. But for more of that, you can hear it in our conversation. So let's get to our interview with the pitching ninja, Rob Friedman. You might know him as the Pitching Ninja on Twitter, on YouTube as well. He's an MLB analyst for Fox Sports, Major League Baseball, Peacock, and FanDuel. Rob, we appreciate you taking some time to join us today. Uh, just wanted to, to start, because we know you're based in Atlanta. You didn't so happen to hear over the weekend. Could you hear the glove popping from Truist Park when you know Bryce, Bryce George Kirby, and Logan, uh, Logan were pitching? I know you got a, a busy schedule to keep to. So you might not have been there, but could you hear it from where you are? Oh, absolutely. It was, I mean, I'm like 20 miles away, but you can definitely hear it. No doubt. Yeah. So th- those are three guys. I mean, we'll, we'll just jump right into it in terms of, uh, in terms of Mariners pitchers. We know you're a big fan of these guys. You had George and Logan on your YouTube channel and on your podcast earlier this season. Fantastic interview. You can go check it out uh, on YouTube and look up that interview. So uh, I guess we want to just dive into Mariners pitchers and we can, we can start, I think we'll start with George because he, he just started most recently this weekend. This interview will air in about a week and a half from now. So George might've thrown another complete game by the time we're talking here, but I mean, it's just so amazing, right? Rob of, of what George Kirby does on the mound. And you gave him uh, such a glowing comp. You said Greg Maddox, but with 10 miles an hour uh, added on top of it, which is Pretty lofty, but it doesn't seem like he lets any of that comp really phase him at all. He's he's so, he's a very unique character. He really is. I actually told him that during the interview too, and uh, and then said it recently. But 
I don't think it's that much. Like I'm talking about command wise. I mean, dude's got what a point eight uh, walks per nine, which is in, which is crazy for a dude who also throws ninety seven, ninety eight. Like very impressive guy. Good head on his shoulders. Even keeled. Um, and for like younger pitchers, to me, a lot of times command is the last thing that comes. Um, and they usually have a lot of stuff and not command. He's got both. And, uh, you know, very, very impressive pitcher. I've got to say, just quickly going back to the interview you did with Kirby over the offseason, I thought it was hilarious when you basically called him out for trying to throw a brag in on your show. And it, and it was in the most George Kirby way possible, right? He's kind of sitting there and he says, yeah, I seem to start in a lot of a one counts or just pitchers counts. And you're like, is that your way of saying, Oh, I'm George Kirby and I never throw balls. I I thought that was hilarious. Yeah. It's so hard for me to throw a ball. Like I have to do it on purpose because my command is so good. Yes, exactly. (laughs) That's, uh, that's George in a nuts. No, he's a really good dude. And, um, you know, you guys are lucky to have him. He's tremendous. And every level he's been, he's had that command, um, and stuff. So, I expect a lot out of that guy. And he's going to be in the Cy Young. He's going to be in Cy Young contention probably most years. Like, really, really good. And we know he's eventually going to start throwing a splitter, too. I can't even imagine, like, how much better he gets when he starts throwing one. Exactly. Like he said, he picked up uh, Gosman's splitter, which apparently other people have done, too. They saw my interview with, with Gosman from last year, and Joe Ryan picked up his splitter from that, too. So we've got got splitters all everywhere now. And I love it. Like I think the WBC showed a lot of pitchers, how important splitters are in Gosman's success, obviously too, Mm -hmm. but uh, it's a big deal. And for him to be throwing, I mean, if he throws that consistently with his stuff. Yeah. I mean, as long as he can command it, because I know he's probably a stickler for something he can command and throw in the zone. What makes a Gosman splitter unique? Oh, you got to see my interview with Gosman, dude. It is, uh, like he, the longest pitch description I've ever had in an interview. And it's amazing. Like the amount of stuff he can do with his splitter, how he went through to get the grip. Um, it's a very unique grip. It almost seems like the ball should be falling out of his hand, the way he grips it. And he like things like he said, he knows he, he doesn't throw it between starts. So he doesn't throw it in bullpens because he gets blood blisters when he throws it. But he also knows that when he gets a blood blister during a game, that means it's really good that day. So uh, really unique, unique grip and a unique pitch. And Kirby did mention he he picked it up, but it's a it's uh, I mean, you've seen Gosman's success with it. It's crazy. Do you feel like one of Kirby's pitches is underrated because some of his secondary stuff has started to take a step this year? Um, I, I, I love his curveball. But the, the thing that I think is underrated is people don't realize how hard the dude throws. Like I hear command guy and, and everybody hears a command guy and you think, all right, well, I get it. It's like, you know, Bryce Elder for the Braves or, you know, going back, Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin type guys. Um, and I don't think he gets enough credit for overpowering stuff. His two seamer too, like his improvement. He just picked that up in the middle of the year last year and told me he never threw a front hip two seamer before the like the second half of last year and now it's like his favorite pitch to throw because he gets guys jumping out of the way of it and stuff 
Rob, I want to go back to splitters here for a second because I think it's going to relate to the next guy we're going to want to touch on as well. So I think the stat is out there that only 2% of pitches thrown in the U.S. are splitters. And this came around a lot during the WBC because, as you mentioned, Team Japan really, uh, really sort of brought that to the forefront. I think they jumped it up even farther. And I think you and, and Chris Langan, who we've had on this podcast before, mentioned like just curious of why like why is it so like why is it not being thrown as much in the U.S. There's this perception that it leads to more injuries as well. Is that true? Is there is there basis behind that? There's not. But that is the reason why I think it's not thrown as much in the U.S. is for years, there are some pitchers that had gotten hurt that threw splitters, but there are pitchers that got hurt to throw everything. There's no scientific basis for it. It was just anecdotal stuff. So people would be like, oh, yeah, so-and-so threw a splitter. It's really because you split your fingers. It adds stress on your forearm. None of that has turned out to be true. There is no science that shows a splitter is more dangerous, but it did lead to people not developing splitters. And in the differences in Japan, the splitter is an art form. Like there are multiple types of splitters. It's not just I throw a splitter. It's I throw a gyro splitter or or I throw a ghost fork or I throw something unique. Um, And here it's just like, oh, yeah, I throw a splitter and I want it to drop and have the same spin. We haven't even we it's like a national pitch in Japan now and it's not in the U.S. So there's a big room for pitchers to add it. And I love seeing it. Like, I think that, that it absolutely should be in everybody's bag of tricks to the extent it works with the rest of your stuff. Okay. I'm going to assume the way TJ's trying to segue is now over to Logan Gilbert here, because he's a guy that learned to splitter this off season. And, and there were reports that he kind of picked up the same type of splitter that Kodai Senga was using. And it seems like it's worked for him pretty well so far. I mean, is that a pitch that you really like? Oh, absolutely. And I think it's made a big difference in in the way Gilbert attacks uh, folks. I've always liked his style. Like the, to me, those guys are opposites. And I mentioned that to them when I interviewed him. I'm like, tell me if I'm wrong, because I see Gilbert as a fiery Max Scherzer type guy where, you know, he's got that little K dismissal when he strikes somebody out. He almost like waves them off the field. I'm like, get away. I'm done with you. <laughs> Whereas Kirby's more straight faced and does and has a lower heartbeat. Um so yeah, I think it I I think it works really well with what he throws. Um he's he's aggressive with it. He's had good success with it. Um and he's just a really good pitcher. Like his command doesn't suck either. He's not like it's not like he is uh, all over the place. He's a Mariners pitching staff is going to be good for a long time. It is. What what is it about what the Mariners pitching philosophy is that you think it makes makes them also good? So to me, it's less about, it's less about stamping people. Like some organizations have people that they're like, well, you're going to be this guy and we, we do it this way. To me, they take everybody's strengths and use that to their advantage instead of being locked into one way of doing things. So that's their key is being flexible and bringing out what's best in the pitcher to help them, them succeed versus saying, this is organizationally the way we're going to do things. Could that also be tied into letting a guy be a little bit more emotional on the mound, like a Logan Gilbert, which he says, you know, that's just Walter coming out for the most part. Is that, are there, have you heard of, I guess, uh, organizations, I guess, or, or just teams that want guys to tone it down on the mound? They think it affects them a little bit too much. Yeah, I think there, there definitely are organizations that are more stoic in their, in their pitching. Um, and it's definitely not like, 
you know, you want the pitcher to be himself on the mound. If you're not yourself, you're not going to be at your best. So I like their philosophy and stuff. I haven't talked to any of the coaches there to see if that really is the way it it's going. It just seems to me as an outsider looking in, it kind of is. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's my perception. I'd like it. I think that it's showing its results on the field too. I think that's something both Jerry DePoto and Scott Service have always preached a bunch, is letting players be themselves and letting them be who they are. Honestly, I can't think of a better example of anybody with the Mariners organization to fit that mold than with Paul Seawald. And not just what you were talking about to your point of they try to cater to the players where they learn with Seawald, you're at your best when you throw high fastballs and a lot of sliders. But also when Paul Seawald was with the Mets, he wasn't screaming and turning around and showing all this flair and now he does so it's you know he kind of rejuvenated his career and the Mariners kind of catered to him like you were talking about yeah absolutely and or you have a guy like like Matt Brash who you're able to take his positives and use it to to uh his advantage like he's got crazy breaking stuff and you know we're not going to change him to make sure that he's always in the zone and just you know going to be he's not a George Kirby he's just a different type pitcher and they all can be successful. You don't have, as a matter of fact, you're probably more successful having a lot of variation on your staff than cookie cutter. I mean, the Rays have showed that too, right? Like you have a bunch of different variations of folks. When you watched Matt Brash's slider for the first time, did you look at that and say, man, this is like, these pictures are the reason like I start making content and, and showing people these kinds of things. Oh, hell yeah, I did. Yeah, no, I, I saw him in the minor <laughs> leagues and I was like, I was like, what in the name of Kerry Wood is this? Like, he was just throwing stuff that broke all over the place that actually literally reminded me of Kerry Wood. Like, it was that good of stuff. And this was, you know, a minor league pitcher. And then I heard from some coaches in the minor leagues who coached against him going, oh, this isn't really fair. Dude is throwing 100 with this stuff, and he's making our guys look terrible. Like, he should be at another league. Get him out of here. Um, and that was pretty much the way everybody thought about him. His stuff is off the charts good. Chris Langan, who's the director of pitching at Driveline, like TJ said, we had him on a few weeks back. I mean, he called it the best pitch in baseball history just in terms of stuff and movement. Interesting, because I wouldn't be I, – I, I think they see a lot of stuff. Um, you know, I've been a Driveline follower for – since before they even had like a real facility. Mm-hmm. Um, Kyle and I go back a long way. So I have a lot of respect for them and for what they do. And that opinion means a lot. Like, I do think that's probably true. Just the velocity throws it at and the movement is just ridiculous. You like to talk about tunneling a lot. You like to talk about arm angles a lot. So I think of that in the way uh, for Matt Brash, whose fastball has been hittable it's been shown to be hittable this year as well and he doesn't control it quite as much what does a cutter do for, for his repertoire he was working on it over the offseason he worked on it at driveline haven't really seen it at we haven't seen it at all this season it is not yet to be registered as a pitch this year but what would a what would a cutter like that do for for his repertoire going forward so part of the issue with having like everybody loves seeing pitches that move a lot, right? Like it's one of my, my favorite things too. You see Shohei Otani throwing ridiculous sweepers that break 20 inches. And you're like, everybody can understand why that's filthy. The problem with that sometimes is lack of command of it. So when you have a, you know, you have these pitches that break a ton, it looks great, but if it, you can't throw it in the zone, hitters are going to take it with a cutter taking a little bit off that movement. Um, you're 
adding back some velocity and you're able to throw it in the zone a little more and it helps disguise some of his bigger sweeping pitches too. So definitely agree that that would be a good pitch. Um, the question is, you know, can you command it? Like, you know, if you can't command your fastball, can you command a cutter? Depends. It depends on the pitcher. Everybody's different. And to me, Brash's development is very natural and normal. You don't often see guys come to the league with that crazy good stuff that have amazing command of everything. It comes later. Like he'll understand you've, you know, your body better, you know, your mood, like it's just one of those things that develops over time. So everybody needs to be patient because I've seen too many times where people trade away somebody. They're like, uh, this, you know, this guy sucks. He's never going to be anybody will trade him. And the fans are like, yeah, we traded this guy. And then they're like, why didn't he do this when he was with us? He's killing us now. He's on another team and he's doing great. And it's a lack of patience that people have with young pitchers. People did it with Blake Trinan back in the day. Like I know there are fans like, yeah, he's got great movement, but he can't throw strikes. And he's, you know, the results are terrible. And then all of a sudden he put it together and they're like, well, why didn't he do that here? I'm like, because you didn't have any patience for him. Like fans need to be patient. Young pitchers, with young pitchers especially, there's going to be ups and downs. So chill. It'll be okay. Oh, there's been a lot of that on Twitter the last week or two with Brash, which is, I mean, <laughs> Twitter's Twitter's such a cesspool and it's it's like, it's not real, right? So you shouldn't take these p- opinions that heavily, but you see all this stuff with Brash and I couldn't disagree with it more just because one, like you said, his stuff is so good. Two, Guy's been just about the unluckiest pitcher in baseball. Like he's been getting babbitt left and right. I mean, all of his numbers are expected to come down, which is why I'm not freaking out or anything. Don't freak out. And Twitter, Twitter can be great and it can be terrible. I don't like, like I, I am generally not negative towards players because believe me, they're all trying their best. Mm-hmm. And when a guy's got that stuff wins at the end of the day, almost every time stuff wins. And I know the driveline guys get that too. Um, so you want that stuff, you'll figure out how to make it play. Occasionally it doesn't like occasionally stuff, you know, maybe some command never happens, but very seldom. Um, so you, I would rather have Matt Brash's stuff than not have Matt Brash's stuff. I agree. You know, just talking about stuff and and while we're on the topic of relievers here. So a guy that hasn't thrown that much this year is Andres Munoz, but we've been sitting here talking about Brash's sliders so much. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here, but if Andres Munoz was in any other bullpen, would his slider rank among the best of the group? And if not, how many bullpens would his slider be the best of the group? I'd say most bullpens, it would be the best of the group. Um, you know, there are guys like Edwin Diaz who, uh, you know, also unhittable slider. And there's, there's some other guys that would be up there, but his is way up there in the feet. Like he's a very, very important reliever. Um, love watching him pitch overpowering stuff. And uh, you know, every bullpen, he would pitch in every bullpen and be lights out in every bullpen in the major leagues. So uh, yeah, he's fantastic. Just to wrap up, I guess the starting rotation, because Bryce Miller has broken onto the scene and done stuff that we haven't really seen in baseball for a guy to come up here and limit base runners and really throw his fastball as much as he has his first couple times up. Like what's, what's so impressive about what you've seen? It just, it's so bizarre to see somebody come up and throw about 70% one pitch and still be essentially unhittable for the most part. Oh, absolutely. The league will catch up to that. So league, everybody adjusts. 
eventually they catch up to that, which is why he knows that. He has a ton of secondary pitches in his back pocket, but you don't have to throw it until you have to throw it. So he's doing the exact right thing. Um, but, you know, someone like Spencer Strider can rely on a fastball too and and dominate with it. I, mean, I say the legal catch up, they haven't caught up to him either. So, uh, you know, it may take a little bit, but love that. I love the fact an unhittable fastball is the best thing in in baseball. If your fastball is unhittable, you usually can command it in the zone and uh, you know, don't go away from it until you have to. And he knows that. So very reliant on his fastball and, and should be, he's doing everything right. Another very exciting young pitcher. Um, and he's one of those guys that I have to watch. Like one of you guys burst on the scene initially, and it's basically must watch baseball for me every time he's out there. We haven't even touched on, on uh, Castillo, who is you know, also similarly ridiculous and a young pitcher to himself. You threw Strider out there. So when you break these guys down, why, why is Bright, why are Bryce and Strider so similar? basically fastball keeps his plane really well. Um, you know, he's, he's got a really good spin rate. He's got a higher spin rate than, than Strider does, I believe. And he's able to, his fastball ride is really superb, makes it really hard to hit. So you're swinging at a pitch. You think you're squaring it up and instead you're swinging under it because it's not dropping like you think it should. And that's a really, really, uh, valuable tool to have. Okay, you just mentioned Luis Castillo. So let's jump to him here for a second. If Do you like his fastball better or his changeup? You know, his changeup was at one point the best changeup of, of, of probably any starter in, in baseball for a period of time. It's come back down a little bit. And uh, to me, it's the way he uses all his pitches. Like I thought he used his, his slider really well recently too. He's a competitive dude pitches with a lot of flair. He's always been that way. Love watching his K struts and stuff, but it's, it's tough. Like his changeup's really pretty. And I obviously like that a lot. I'm a big changeup guy generally, but I don't want to just, you know, I think all his pitchers, I, I, I'm just a big fan of Castillo. What causes a changeup, which has sort of a, you know, it's a pretty consistent motion and pretty consistent, I would guess, result. What what would lead a changeup to sort of become less effective? Uh, people are sitting on it more. They've seen it more. Um, or it starts to meld. I mean, if you add other pitches or start throwing other pitches more, you lose a feel. A changeup is a really big feel pitch. He's thrown it enough in his life. I doubt he's lost the feel of it. Could be a little bit. Um, but that's kind of it. It's either the league catching up to it. You can simulate that changeup and say, okay, well, now I know what it you know looks like uh, coming at me. Or it's Castillo maybe losing it. I mean, you could lose a tiny bit of feel for it. I think Scherzer called it a mid-range jumper. Like you have, it's a total feel thing. And some days you have it, some days you don't. How about getting back to the bullpen here? I know we're jumping around a bunch, but there's so many Mariners. I was going to say, there's so many Mariners guys that I think are so fascinating to talk about. And you're about as good a person to talk to about them as anybody. You know, you kind of helped Justin Topa get, into the big leagues a few years back. Can you tell us and just kind of dive in a little bit on that story? Yeah. So I started flat ground um, years ago as a way of like, there are a bunch of people that used to tag me, their pitchers looking for jobs or pitchers looking for colleges. And I was like, there's gotta be a way to help these guys 
without like, you know, most people don't follow me to watch up and coming pitchers who are looking for schools. And I always felt like I was like, if someone tagged me, I wanted to help them. So I tried to turn all my followers that were coaches at colleges and MLB scouts and pitching coaches to get them content, get them folks to see without, you know, watering down what I normally would do. So I started flat ground to really raise these guys up. Topo was one of those guys. And uh, I've had like 40 guys from flat ground or 40 or 50 signed with MLB teams, MLB organizations after being featured. He's one of them. Just thought of stuff. I mean, you know, the throw in upper 90s doesn't grow on trees. Um, nasty movement on his pitches. Seemed like he had a good work ethic. And, you know, I, I, I love seeing those guys succeed. Wasn't he like blowing away Ivy League kids? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, I think when <laughs> I saw him, it was mostly uh, he, he was like in a facility throwing or something like that. I yeah. And had, yeah, feel like it was obvious he was going to be really good and he should be picked up by a team. And it's one of those things that I love, like to me, um, it's a, just a great story. And it's part of part of why I like social media. So I am, I try to be positive on it. And if I can help somebody, I think it's fantastic. And it just makes for, I, I don't want anybody to sit there and go, I could have been somebody if I only got, a, if only got seen or only had my shot. And I consider it an honor to be able to help those guys. So I thought it was fantastic. So that sounds like a big part of, of I guess, some of your work that you do on the day-to-day. But um, people see all the stuff you put out on Twitter and all the content you put out on your YouTube every single day, you know, best pitches of the day, interviews, et cetera, all this kind of stuff. Could you give us a peek behind the curtain of what your day looks like? I mean, you got a lot of things to track on a given day uh, in Major League Baseball. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot. My wife always says, like, you work like – 14, 16 hour days. And I'm like, yeah, I do. In the off season, I don't. So that's good. Um, but yeah, in the, in the, during the regular season, once games start, I am constantly watching games, which is why I'm very careful about scheduling interviews and all that stuff. Cause it drives me crazy to do it during a game. I just can't, um, in the morning. I, so I gather that tweet stuff during, during while games are being played. Um, and then the next morning go through them and just sort through and then come up with a, basically a list of all the pitches I want to feature, try, try to come up with a theme over all of it. That usually takes a couple of hours, I, you know, up at like say six something and uh, take a couple of hours, do a voiceover on it, put the video together, get it out late after the late morning, maybe early afternoon sometimes, and then get ready to wash and rinse and repeat again every day. So that's what I do. It's fun. It seems like, What's that? <laughs> it's fun. I'm, I'm saying it like it's work, but like I wouldn't do it if I didn't like to do it. I didn't start like this is far from like a job to me. It's more from it's just a fun thing to do. And it's a hobby that happens to be doing really well. That was going to be my next question is, is do you enjoy all the long hours? And and it sounds like you do. And I honestly, I'd say it's similar with what we're doing with this podcast. Like we put a lot of time and, and hours into it, but I, but we do it because we genuinely enjoyed it all. So it sounds like it's the same thing with you. I think everybody would pick up on it if I didn't. Like if I start, if I start saying, boy, this sucks, I have to watch baseball all day. And I just, yeah, okay, there it is. Another filthy pitch. Um, you'll be able to pick up on my tone. And I think it would just suck. Like I wouldn't do it if I, if, if that was, it. it's not me either. Like I've generally am positive about all this stuff. And I, I, what I love is every day watching games and knowing that this could be a day I see something I hadn't seen before. 
And that, that excites me to watch every single pitch that I can. Okay. So this question might be exciting to you because it lets you be a little bit more creative. So I'd have thought, okay, if Rob is going to build the ideal Mariners pitcher using individual pitches from different Mariners pitchers, what are you going to build? What are you choosing? Um, I would have to take, you know, it's hard because I don't want to leave everybody else's fastballs off the table, but well, I mean, you got Munoz too. Like, could I, I like, like Bryce Miller's fastball is something that I think you've got to have. Like it's a little bit of a unicorn pitch. I would take Matt Brash's slider. I'd take uh, George Kirby's command with Logan Gilbert's competitiveness. And I like his splitter too. I think that's nasty. Could I also add like Munoz as a second slider on there and then add, uh, I, I would take Luis Castillo's K strut and his changeup. Um, I don't know. What else do I need? I think I'm do pretty well with that. Like I'm pretty confident. Did we get I've a change up in the attitude I need? Yeah. I think I, I, I'll take okay. Luis Castillo's change up on that. Add all that up. And that guy's career ERA is what? Oh, four. Yeah. All that stuff with George Kirby's command. Yeah, absolutely. I know one's hitting that. Like if you can, <laughs> If if uh, everybody had George Kirby's command and all that stuff, you're getting your votes. I think we've got one final question for you as we start to wrap this up. And maybe this is a tough question, like asking a parent to pick their favorite kid. But do you have a favorite pitch in all of baseball? A favorite pitch? Yeah, I do. Um, it's the pitch that I named the, the airbender. Um, mm. Devin Williams' changeup is my favorite pitch in, in baseball. Like if I had to pick one. Um, is it just because you gave it a name that stuck so well? Maybe. No, no, <laughs> no, no it's, it's legit. I, it, it, we maybe mentioned a unicorn pitch. It's a unicorn pitch. It's the highest spin rate change up in baseball. I love the story of it too, because he told me that in the minor leagues, they said your change up's going to suck because it has too high a spin rate. And <laughs> like the, that is the key. And what I mentioned earlier with the Mariners is pulling stuff out. You, you, you got to figure out what makes somebody unique because in the end it's those unicorn pitches that help you dominate because hitters react either to something that is react differently to stuff they haven't seen before. And it's very hard to replicate Devin Williams change up or Bryce Miller's fastball or, you know, a, a bunch of different things. So I would say that, that, you know, that's why I like it so much is, is it's very effective. He can throw that all day. And it also makes his fastball, you know, unhittable because you have to sit on something. Um, you can't just react to Williams's changeup. So, you know, if you sit on that, he's going to blow a fastball by. Yeah, it helps when you also throw upper nineties, like yeah, you said. Yeah, that's always useful. I mean, velo nice tunneling. Yeah. yeah, nice tunneling. And well, that's Ro- the other. Yeah, velo definitely matters, and don't let anybody tell you it doesn't matter. Like you can get away with a lot more stuff if you have plus velo. It just does. It's true. Well, I think I topped out around 71, so I don't I don't think I could do anything. I think Lyle might throw a little harder. But then you just need command, right? Like if you have plus right. command and throwing 71, I mean, you're going to get hit. Probably. <laughs> and, and what's your spin rate? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you have like... Uh, 5, not very much. Smaller hands. 
<laughs> 5,000 RPM spin rate at 70. <laughs> People wouldn't be able to hit it. The ball would fly in the air, I think. <laughs> exactly. No, it wouldn't. I don't think my elbow would be intact either, but you know, that's a, that's, that's a later, I think that's a later problem. You'd probably Rob, be using a lot of sticky stuff like super glue or something to add your standard spin. Yeah, you know, I don't think they check those at like Little League. I don't think I don't think they don't have enough the manpower to to check my hands. So I just kind of brush it off, and I think we'd be okay. They don't do so well at the major league level either. So <laughs> no, 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 no. Rob, this was fantastic. I mean, you you were um you are one of the brightest people in the in the content creation world, and especially talking pitching as well. We do we really appreciate you taking some time to join us here. Uh, we learned a lot as always, and I mean, I, I don't think there's anyone better to break down pitching than you. Uh, and you do great content every day. I mean, I'm always watching whatever things you're uh, you're promoting. So we appreciate it. Thanks so much for uh, taking some time to join us. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. Awesome interview with Rob Friedman, the Pitching Ninja. I hope you guys enjoyed it, and I hope you learned something, because I can sit here and tell you that we certainly did. All right, TJ, let's take a look here down on the farm. Who have you been keeping your eyes on over the last week? When was the last time we heard this name? Zach Deloach. I mean, the former future of the outfield. Uh, he is, it has not quite gone as swimmingly, the 2020 second-round pick. While he's been down in the Mariner system, he's, you know, struggled at times at, you know, all the levels of the minor leagues, but he made it up to AAA this year. Uh, and he has been on quite a hot streak recently. He's, as of recording this on a 14 game hitting streak in Tacoma, slashing 344, 425, 469 along that streak, WRC plus of 123 walking 11% of the time. Again, when he was drafted, I think the Mariners had the idea that eventually he would be a big league caliber outfielder, which he still could be. He's probably never going to start in his big league career, at least not with the Mariners. It doesn't seem like that way. doesn't seem like his bat quite has that kind of upside in it, which is pretty much why they drafted him. He was, you know, he got off to a super hot start in his in the COVID short of 2020 season with Texas A&M. We saw him on the Cape where he made some tweaks and he really hit well with the wood bat. And the Mariners were looking at that in his in a short sample in 2020. They're like, all right, this guy's potentially be like a legit bat. It has not been that way, but at very least this year he's made it to triple play and he's had his fair share of hot streaks overall for the season. He's, I think, at a 106 WRC plus and, and recently he's been on a, a super hot streak. So he's adjusting a little bit to the uh, top level of the minors. His whole thing was once he got to double A, I think things got a little tougher for him. Because if you remember when he was in Everett, dude was lighting the world on fire back in 2021. We couldn't, I mean, we were so excited about the bat. And look, I mean, he still had a productive minor league career. It's just that once he got to double A, things tailed off a little bit. It was a little bit more of an up and down year for him last year. Now here this year in triple A, it is a more hitters friendly league, but he's looking much better. So you're right. Is Deloach going to be an everyday outfielder? It's probably less likely at this point. Could he be a fourth outfielder and provide some value off the bench? That could still happen. The fact he's on this hit streak right now, I call that a positive sign. The guy I'm looking at this week, trying to find some new names down in the minors, because there are some guys that we have not talked about and have pitched or played very well. Devin Sweet. Now, this is not a household name, but he has been in the Mariners system for a while now. He was a former starter. Now he's been turned reliever. He's been awesome in Arkansas this season. So he threw two shutout innings across two appearances this week. Didn't give up any hits, struck out four guys. He's got a 189 ERA in AA this year. 249 FIP. So ERA predictor says it should be a little bit higher, but not much higher. 
along with the fact that he's striking out 13 guys per nine. So this is a this is an arm who might have a future as a bullpen as a bullpen guy for the Mariners. Just another depth piece. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, get in line. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, who are the who are the Mariners sending down for him to come up? Right. I mean, so you've got Festa, you've got Castillo, you've got Baroa, you've got Isaiah Campbell, who's been good in double A, yeah. and you've got Devin Sweet, too. I mean, the Mariners are masters at this, finding bullpen arms. But to have another guy who could do it, it's a good sign. Got some pretty nasty relievers down there uh, down there in Arkansas, so we, we like to see that, and, and good on Devin Sweet. I, yeah, I mean, I haven't seen all that much of him, but yeah, he's uh, he's been having an awesome season down there at double A. Okay. Let's get to our favorite segment of this week, our Russell Wilson umpire of this week. Lyle, would you like to bring in our contestant today? Let me pull up umpire scorecard here to make sure I have this right, because this guy had quite the week this week. Congratulations to Jordan Baker, who was behind the plate in a Rangers 12-2 win over the Orioles. This is unbelievable. When you look at his umpire scorecard for the week, not only was he 10% below league average in called strike accuracy, they said he was almost negative 4% below expected, meaning he was awful behind the plate, like truly awful. I know it was a 12 to 2 game, but he was missing calls left and right. So if you go on Twitter and Google, uh, Google, I believe you just need to Google Jordan Baker, just or Google it, search it in Twitter. Uh, you'll see some of the calls he missed. It was towards the end of a game. There was a position player pitching for Baltimore, and I forget exactly who it was lobbing it in. I mean, just truly lobbing it in. And when Adley Rutschman would catch the pitch, it would be in the strike zone. However, when you lob a pitch in, it doesn't necessarily you know go through the strike zone. It kind of goes over it and then down into his glove. So that resulted in the largest miss by an umpire in umpire auditor history. This account on uh, Twitter called uh, umpire auditor, different from umpire scorecards, Uh, umpire auditor claimed this was the largest miss in the history of this account. Uh, A call missed by 19.27 inches. That is a foot and a half outside of the strike zone. But it wasn't only that one. He also missed calls by 18 and a half inches, nine and a half inches, seven inches, and four and a half inches. That that's almost impressive. That like that's almost impressively bad. People joke in these blowout games or long contests that, oh, umpires start making these calls and expanding their strike zones because they want to go home. When you're seeing pitches get called strikes that are a foot and a half off the plate, oh, they genuinely want to go home. They're at the point they've stopped caring. Foot and a half above the plate. So when the ball crosses home plate, it's at your head. Yeah. I mean... Pretty impressive. Please, please go on to Twitter if you have a chance. Go on to Twitter. Look at this. Go to Umpire Scorecards. You can also go to their website, www.umpirescorecards.com. Friday, May 26th, Orioles, Rangers. I mean, just go look at this thing. This should This scorecard should go to Cooperstown, I think. Let's put it right there, right next to the Honus Wagner baseball card. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good one. <laughs> Two extremely rare properties. So congratulations, Jordan Baker. Uh, your name is forever etched in history. Is the largest, uh, the the biggest missed call 
in the history of, I would say, umpire tracking. So congratulations. That is quite an achievement. 19 inches. 19. Oh, my God. Okay. (laughs) All right. Let's uh, close out the show with Speak Your Mind. Speak your mind, Spock. That would be unwise. What is necessary is never unwise. All right, Lyle, what's on your mind this week? I feel like we've talked about it almost every week since these playoffs have started, but it is relevant again. The scripted NBA is back and better than ever. If you happen to be watching game six between the Celtics and the Heat, you might have seen a pretty ridiculous ending. I know the two of us were watching it. Jimmy Butler hits three free throws. Heat go up with three seconds to go. Celtics inbound the ball. They miss a three. Putback goes in and they force a game seven. Here's the thing about that. That putback went up and in out of his hands with about 0.01 seconds to go. Somebody found this on Twitter and it's kind of gone viral. When Jimmy Butler got fouled, it was with 2.1 seconds left on the clock. But the refs magically decided they're going to put three seconds on the clock. They're going to add point nine seconds back on the game clock. Hmm. And that shot went in with 0.1 seconds. That hmm. putback's not going in if they actually got the clock right. And why did they do that? I don't know. I have my theories. They don't want a Nuggets Heat final. They want a big market team in there and they're trying to avoid it. By the time this episode comes out, game seven will have already been played. So you'll know whether maybe some of this funky stuff is, has already been proven true. So I, I guess we'll find out. And I think what I saw, I think it was 2.8 seconds is where the foul happened. I think that's where it was, about 2.8. Regardless, the shot from Derek White, the putback, would have not counted if there were 2.8 seconds left on the clock instead of three. The game would have been over. Yeah. But you're right. I, I think Adam Silver and all the people at the NBA executive office are looking at the projected ratings for these upcoming finals like, can't have this. No, we can't have this. What is funny, what's probably going to happen is even if the Celtics like they're they're going to if they come back and win game seven, you will know by the time this podcast comes out, if the Celtics come back from down three, I'll be the first team out of 151 tries to come back down three out to win a series. An incredible accomplishment. I'm just never going to fucking stop hearing from it from all the people I know in the state of Massachusetts. Just the most fucking annoying thing ever. <laughs> No offense, guys, but it, it really is. All that to probably lose in five to the Nuggets. Yeah. I mean, I mean, like Al Horford on Nikola Jokic. So congratulations. It's going to be written about in the Andals all to like losing a gentleman's suite to the Nuggets, which the, the NBA doesn't want, but I don't. I think it's inevitable at this point. Yeah. At the very least, they wanted to force a game seven. That's what I'll say. They wanted to have this storyline out there of no teams ever come back from down 3-0. They have it go seven games. Now all eyes are going to be on the game. I mean, as if they weren't already before, but now even more so. Yeah, they're you know they're cooking stuff up. Adam Silver's sitting up in his office like Adam Sandler in, in Uncut Gems. You know, the gif of where it says, this is how I win. But yeah, that's Adam Silver right now. I mean, this is just a week after the, the NBA cooked up another generational European big to San Antonio. I mean, yeah. just straight out of their their owner's manual of how to run the NBA. Okay, generational big man, a team with great foreign relation, great relationships with foreign born players, especially one that's French and is in his borderline Hall of Famer. Yeah, okay, 
Victor Weminyana, you're a San Antonio Spur. And then just a week later, it's it's like it just keeps writing itself. Yes. And then they do these things like they send Zion to to New Orleans to sort of throw off the scent. Like, see, we didn't put him as in New York. We're yeah. not going to put him in New York. We're, we're, the, we're this isn't rigged at all. And then yeah. it's like we're we're seeing like we're seeing the, the the paper trail. They keep us on their toes, or they keep us on our toes. They oh, keep they us re- on our toes. They really do. Uh, my speaker mind this week. Uh, I was going to comment about college baseball, but I think it's kind of a, a null at this point. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot and we're gonna I'm gonna mention something else. Have you seen this Luton Town FC story? No. So this team that just I think over this weekend got promoted to the Premier League for the first time. They um they're in this tiny town north of London. Uh they were in England's fifth tier of English soccer uh nine years ago. And they are now in the Premier League. They're going to more 10 times the revenue over the next three years. They're going to collect more than $200 million in revenue. After getting about $20 million in the second tier, they're going to get $200 million guaranteed over the next three years in the Premier League. It's incredible. Their stadium is, 10, is 120 years old. It's situated right in the middle of their town, surrounded by homes. The entrance to the stadium, you have to walk underneath people's houses to get in. It's it's insane. If you haven't seen it, I mean, go look it up on Twitter. Their entrance, you're walking underneath someone's living room into this stadium that's literally crammed into houses. Like, you think Wrigley is crammed into a neighborhood? Like, this stadium is actually crammed right into the middle of a neighborhood. And it's just an incredible story. This is the equivalent of a low-A baseball team over the course of nine years winning enough to get promoted into Major League Baseball, essentially. Sounds like their AFC Richmond moment, which you don't get that reference because I know you're not a Ted Lasso watcher, but that's kind of what it sounds like here. Now, in Ted Lasso, they don't have to enter the stadium by walking underneath any houses, but all right, now I'm going to look this up because I have not heard this story. It's a pretty cool story, uh, and especially as someone who's not watched Ted Lasso and someone who has a very, I guess, uh, not great idea of how English soccer or European soccer promotion works, but... Uh, it is, it, I remember like Lesh, I think Leicester or so, something along those lines. I probably botched that pronunciation. You know me, good pronouncer over here. Won the Premier League title at like plus 30,000 uh, a few years ago. And they actually got relegated, I believe, during this uh, this weekend as well, which is quite the uh, quite the turnaround. But they won the Premier League a couple of years ago. Um, and just, it's just kind of insane that like, I like if you think about it, like in leagues, Relegation would never be approved now because which which team ownership would dare like lose out on hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue for the sake of a good system? Because like otherwise the A's would get relegated down to AAA, <laughs> to be quite honest. But in theory, like in soccer, it's like it's a great product because that means all the teams actually have to try like year after year. There's none, none of this rebuilding bull crap. You actually have to, you know try and when you try and you invest enough money into it like this team has you get promoted and it's it's a fantastic story it seems like a bucket list stadium i'd like to see again i'm a big fan of like urban stadiums and this is you know about as urban as you could possibly get for a stadium so if you haven't seen it go look up uh luton uh luton town fc l-u-t-o-n town fc uh pretty cool pretty cool story does sound like a cool story it'd be you know what 
relegation in American sports would certainly be something. It's never going to happen, but it would be something. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Okay. I think that's going to just about wrap up this edition of the Marine Layer Podcast. You guys know the drill by now. If you want to follow our podcast and listen in full form, you can do so on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, and you can watch the full video version on YouTube. Be sure to check us out on YouTube. Hit the subscribe button. Leave us a five-star review on the audio forums. Help us beat the algorithm on all those platforms. And on social media, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube shorts at Marine Layer Pod. We've got more player content coming this week. We've got some more fun player interviews. So if that's enough of an incentive to check those out, hopefully you'll go and do so. So for TJ Matthewson, this is Lyle Goldstein. As always, we thank you guys for tuning in and we'll talk to you next week. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.